This episode is brought to you by Mountain Sea Media. I spend half my life near the Pacific Ocean and the other half in the mountains. These places are full of profound stories and experiences that guide my life even now as a media creator and beer professional. This is what gave birth to Mountain Sea Media, the stories that impact our lives and give meaning to our business. Stories share good experiences in the warmth of friends. They improve business by sharing these experiences and connecting deeply with our customers. If you'd like to connect better with your customers through copywriting and storytelling, contact me at jeremy at mountainseamedia.com. It's your story. I'll help you tell it. Welcome to episode 59 of Good Beer Matters. So much of our pleasure, especially around the great meal experiences and drinks experiences, comes from anticipation beforehand. Realize that you know, all these things matter from the glass to the, to the way you describe the, the, the dish, to the way you arrange the menu, to the typeface you use on the menu. Um, it's the background music to the lighting. All of these things make a difference. I want you to think back to that one perfect night you were playing your head over and over. You know the one. It's the night that if you could go back in time, you wouldn't change anything. Instead, you'd just sit back and relive the magic. It was the night where the food was amazing, the beer pairing sung like angels, and the conversation flowed like a cold lager on a hot day. Have you ever wondered what made that night so special? What if we could deconstruct that experience and put it back together at will? What if events like this had less to do with magic and more to do with physics or gastrophysics? My next guest has studied and written about the psychology and the science behind events like this for years. In this episode, he shares some secrets to creating your next best night ever. My name is Jeremy. I'm a certified Cicerone, BJCP judge, IBD certified brewer, and a beer writer. I believe the art, the science, and the culture of beer has more of a profound effect on us than we realize. I believe there's a world of wisdom found in every glass, and I intend to get to the bottom of it. This is Good Beer Matters. These are the stories of us, of great food and the beer that brings it all together. I hope you enjoy episode 59 of Good Beer Matters with author, professor, and gastrophysicist, Dr. Charles Spence. I have been looking forward to talking to you ever since I first heard about the work that you're doing uh, in the UK and well, really around the world. Um, but uh, uh, I first heard about your book, Gastrophysics, a uh, little over a year ago and have been utterly fascinated by the whole premise um, ever since then. So I am I am humbled and grateful that you would come onto my podcast to, to share uh, with all of my listeners about your work. Thank you so much. It's uh, a pleasure. Uh, well, let's begin. Um, I want to find out a little bit more about about you and how you became a gastro gastrophysicist, um, and we'll we'll talk a little bit more about what that is exactly. But I want to I want to know a little bit more about you and your background as it pertains to uh, mm -hmm. gastrophysics. So I'm a uh, psychologist, uh, experimental psychologist by training, uh, working at uh, Oxford University, um, and have been here about quarter of a century, I guess now. Um, always interested in the senses. 
how we hear and see and touch and taste and smell um, and how uh, the senses are connected one with the other. Uh, and for me, the real sort of um, passion is around trying to apply the latest insights from brain science and psychological science to the real world. Um, and while I didn't start out in food or gastrophysics, I kind of started out looking at warning signals for car drivers and paint colors to make people more productive. In uh, recent years, um, I've been increasingly drawn to the world of food and drink, um, which is kind of not a natural place for a psychologist to end up because most of them don't really study food. But on the other hand, food and drink are about the kind of the most multi-sensory of our experiences that really do engage all of our senses. Um, and it's something we all have an opinion on. And hence, it's kind of an area where I think the emerging sort of knowledge of mind, um, the science of the senses, that would be the gastrophysics, uh, can be applied to hopefully better understand why things taste the way they do and how we might change the way we taste in order to make things taste better. And it, it, it seems on a surface level that um, I, I think you mentioned it, it it doesn't seem like this would be an obvious avenue for psychology looking into food or in in this specific case of beer mm-hmm. but the but after reading through your book and seeing how we create experiences through flavor just like creating experiences through music or anything else like that it 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 becomes more evident that um uh your work is necessary um uh, but uh, just from, I want to confirm some of the research I've done on you, but you're also a professor at the <laughs> University of Oxford, correct? Correct. Um, and you, you've won uh, quite a few awards. You've written many, many papers on the subject. And do I have my facts correct that uh, you won a Nobel Prize? Big uh, Nobel. The opposite. The opposite. <laughs> Oh, 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 okay. <laughs> for, uh, for, 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 for silly science, it was awarded by a Nobel Prize winner, but um, no, the Ig Nobels are for kind of research that uh, makes people laugh when they hear about it, but okay. sort of, you know, with a serious intent. Uh, and that was in 2008 for our work, on some of our first work actually on flavor, which was on the sonic chip and how we could make crisps or what you call potato chips uh, crunchier simply by changing the sound they made. Well, well, actually, now I feel a little bit better. I, 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 uh, I was a little bit nervous about interviewing a Nobel Prize winner. So the uh, <laughs> egg, egg Nobel Prize, I, yeah. I didn't realize that was a thing. So I, I think I just jumped to the wrong conclusion. But, um, <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, uh, you, um, so you studied about just just how the sound uh, and and altering the sound can affect the way that we perceive. That uh, our uh, experience of eating chips, which uh, yes, that that does seem like, um, as you put it, silly science, but it, it's just a fascinating um, concept, though that uh, that you can just alter uh, someone's perception and and vastly change their experience. Mm-hmm. I know something. Um... In the early days, uh, it was the potato chips and the, and the crunch and that. Uh, we've been working on the sound of, of food and drink ever since because, in, in part, um, it's one of the least studied influences. I think people think about maybe no taste and, and smell and maybe they think about the color of whatever they're uh, drinking or creating or, or making. Uh, but the sound, that's something that's kind of never really thought about, not 
for most people, really a part of, of the flavor experience of food and drink. And yet um, it does seem to influence us in, in, in many different ways from the crunch of the crisp, but one can take that all the way through from the sound of packaging through the, the, the pop and the pouring sounds of a bottle of beer, um, uh, sounds of carbonation, uh, sounds of glass shape, sounds of the bottle shape, um, and the sounds in the places where we do end up drinking uh, in all of these different kind of ways, uh, the sounds that surround us um, do influence bias our choice and, um, and, and kind of change what we experience uh, in the glass. And it seems to me that um, if I were a more of a skeptic, uh, I would say that, you know, all this... Uh, this this speaks a lot to uh, modern marketing, where um, you have an attractive woman eating a burger and just spilling ketchup all down her uh, white shirt, or or pouring orange juice into a glass. Um, mm -hmm. I, I would imagine there's a number of people that would say, "Oh, that doesn't work on me. I'm smarter than that." But but when you when you get into the gastrophysics and when you get into the book, you start talking about how the color of plates, um, the shape of plates, the uh, the weight of silverware uh, changing in the way that we um, uh, enjoy a meal. Um, to me, a lot of this is is very subliminal uh, from from what it seems to me. Uh, can you speak a little bit more to that? But I guess the bigger question I want to ask you is, I mean, what exactly is gastrophysics? But with, but but with all the examples from different uh, sensory experiences. So um, I think to any one of us, um, uh, it, it feels like we can just taste the food on the plate, or we can really detect, pick up the, the flavour of the drink in the glass. Um, and to none of us does it feel that the weight of the glass makes a difference, but the the, the, the texture of the fork makes a difference, that the background music might change what you're tasting and how much you enjoy it. Um, so I think we all have that sort of belief that we really can just focus in and identify the flavor of what we're eating and drinking. And it's sort of the job of the gastrophysicist to show that that's not often uh, the case. Um, and in a way, I think, you know, while most of us believe we can really taste what things taste like, um, and we wouldn't be fooled by any of these extrinsic factors, things that aren't really part of the flavor, like the background music or, or the color of the plate. Um, the gastrophysics is kind of a combination of you know, gastronomy on the one hand, uh, pointing to kind of nice food experiences. Um, and then physics comes from psychophysics, which is kind of a branch of psychology where you try and systematically study uh, people's perception and behavior by giving them kind of you know, well-calibrated sets of stimuli to see what really drives their perception and behavior and not rely just on what they say or they think influences them. Um, and when we apply that, that sort of you know, gastrophysics, sort of scientific food approach to nice food and drink experiences, uh, we find that many, many extrinsic factors, things that you would never think of uh, affecting you uh, uh, do. Um, and uh, then we try and design experiments, both in the laboratory, with that kind of highly controlled experiments where we give you food to taste from different colored plates or from different weighted glasses and see how your response change. Uh, that's very scientific research, but not really like real world eating and drinking. So at the same time, whenever we can, we try and also do research out at 
food festivals, beer festivals, music festivals, in restaurants and bars. Uh, we have real people having, you know, naturalistic, real world food and drink experiences and try and show the same factors influence people there as we found in the lab. Those real world experiments, of course, are kind of not very, are harder to control, um, but they do have more uh, ecological uh, kind of validity. Um, and uh, yeah, wherever we look, kind of, uh, almost everything seems to have some impact on, on what we taste and how much we enjoy the experience of tasting. Um, very often by kind of changing our expectations um, and sort of our premise is that we very rarely put something in our mouths without having made a guess, a prediction about what it's going to taste like beforehand. Will I like it? Is it going to be sweet? Is it you know, energy dense? So on and so forth. Um, and then when we actually taste something, we might just occasionally check what's in our mouth against our expectation, um, providing that there's not a big difference there. We end up kind of living in the world of our expected flavors rather than in the world of the really experienced ones. And then sort of the gastrophysics is around sort of managing those expectations. What will people think before they taste that drink, say? How will the color change those expectations of the drink? Um, and and uh, you mentioned sort of subliminal, um, and that sort of, I, I can use the word sort of functionally subliminal in that um, these factors, these influences on our tasting experience, uh, we don't pay attention to them. We don't realize they're there. So in that sense, they're kind of subliminal. They, 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 they fly under the radar of our everyday experience and, and thought. But at the same time, once they're pointed out to you, they're easy to see. And so in that sense, they're kind of, sort of they're functionally subliminal, but not actually subliminal, because you can see them uh, when you know what to look out for. And my sort of favorite example is something like the um, the star on the front of the San Pellegrino bottle mm-hmm. um, uh, that's been there since the brand was, was, was you know founded in the 1890s that is never explained what it's doing there or they are doing there because in some bottles or cans of, of San Pellegrino there are seven red stars in the middle of the label on the on the, on the cap on the back label on on the neck label they're all over the place um, and I think they are sort of functionally subliminally communicating to whoever sees that bottle that the contents will be uh, uh, carbonated rather than uh, flat because we find in some of our gastrophysics research that people want to associate carbonation and carbonated drinks with uh, angular shapes rather than with round shapes. Interesting that just, I mean, just having that, those little messages, uh, it's hard to believe that that actually uh, affects our perception of it, but obviously you've done the research and the science behind it. What particularly intrigues me is my my goal in pursuit of studying beer and trying to educate people on beer, uh, and and more importantly, trying to uh, create experiences uh, with some of the beer and food pairing events that I have put on, and, and more importantly, the ones that I will put on in the future, is my goal is to take those uh, experiences that we've all had that have just been memorable, incredible, um, that in, in our mind's eye and our, in our memory, were just perfect is in finding the ability to deconstruct that and then put them back together, uh, at will is, is kind of the, the coup de gras, <laughs> but, but it seems like no. you, you are finding the keys into that. 
Um, trying to, or make a start at least. Um, okay. So, in fact, uh, the book before Gastrophysics, which came out in uh, England in 2017, well, was uh, in 2014 uh, called The Perfect Meal. Um, and so the title sort of gives that one away that I was very much on the same page there about trying to say, why don't we study the, the wonderful uh, meal experiences, drinks experiences, try and study them scientifically, see what it is that made them so wonderful, um, uh, analyze that, and then sort of feed those insights back so that uh, at the time we were focusing more on, on work with, 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 with top chefs and, uh, and restaurateurs, but if you understand the science of that perfect uh, flavor experience or meal experience, then maybe you can be in a better position to try and recreate it, at least in part, uh, in, the, in, in the future. Um, because the challenge, I suppose, is that uh, when, when any one of us thinks back to our own perfect, uh, say, uh, food or beverage experience, it's unlikely to be the same thing, one person to the next. Uh, and it sort of seems at the outside that our, our favorite experiences are so diverse and idiosyncratic that it's almost like it'd be impossible to study them or to see what's common about them. You know, for somebody, it might be a, a trip to a world-leading Michelin-starred restaurant. For others, it might be you know, a family picnic on the beach. Um, and all of those are kind of valid responses. Uh, but I think there are things that are common uh, to those great experiences. Um, and I think they can be studied. It's challenging to sort of bring the science to the world of food and drink or the world, to bring the psychological science to the world of food and drink. But I think it can be done. Uh, and I think insights do emerge about some of the key factors that are involved. And, and given that I'm a psychologist, not a, uh, a flavor chemist or a brewer or a chef, uh, we tend to sort of focus on the almost everything but the food or drink itself that influences your experience of the food and drink. And so, and so we're sort of drawn to you know, the stuff that's there, but that no one ever seems to pay attention to. Um, so, for example, uh, we've been very interested in, you know, in, in, in the glass or the drinking vessel uh, or the cutlery. And kind of, you know, nothing, no food has got to our mouth without the aid of knife, fork or spoon, really, or very little. And yet, until 2011, it turned out no one had ever scientifically studied cutlery and what it did to our tasting experience. And the same very much, I think, for the world of, of drinks. While there have been a few studies over the wine glass, maybe 20 or 30 in the last 30 or 40 years, when it comes to the science of the beer glass, why are there so many different shapes? What are they doing to the tasting experience? Again, uh, the literature is virtually silent. And yet every drink we've ever had has always come out of a bottle, a can, a glass, a cup, a beaker. Um, and I think you know, the sort of science there of understanding how the receptacle changes the experience is sort of fundamental. It's been ignored, but uh, hopefully uh, looking to the future, we can uh, take the science and, and integrate it into you know, better, better uh, tasting experiences uh, in the future. Well, and it, and it seems to me, um, you know, uh, I have not read a lot of science on, on, uh, on glassware, uh, using this mm -hmm. specific example, but there are many people in, in my line of work and Cicerones and, uh, who, who will tell you that the, the taper of the glass helps support the, the foam and, sh and shoot the aroma out. And this shape does this, and this type of glass does that. Mm -hmm. um, and, it, and it all makes sense. Uh, while I have not read any uh, empirical uh, data on that, um, 
but but it makes sense to me just from the standpoint of and, and you, you know you're talking about trying to uh, apply a scientific approach to a very artistic type of uh, or philosophical mindset and the challenges therein uh, and I and I totally get that but to me it it, it it's almost like um, the difference between how you feel. Uh, about yourself and how you present yourself when you get really dressed up for something like a wedding as opposed to just throwing on uh, yesterday's jeans and t-shirt. Uh, there's a very different mindset that happens just in the act of uh, of the formality of dressing up. Is that a similar experience with uh, drinking a good beer out of a snifter as opposed to a, uh, a plastic party cup? <laughs> Uh, well, I've never quite thought in those terms before, but uh, uh, I guess so. That um, uh, in both cases, you can think about the glass or, or the outfit as kind of the packaging, the dressing up of, of, of the base product, the person in one case, the, the beer in the other. Um, and uh, certainly part of the impact of the way we present uh, drink or person, it, it comes down to the fact that you know, if it looks like you've paid attention, if it looks like you care about these things, that's already a good start. Um, but beyond that, there are also, of course, conventions about what is appropriate uh, attire for an interview versus for you know a, a, um, a trip to the to the golf club or wherever you spend your time, uh, and the same for for, for 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 beer too. Probably there are conventions about what sort of glassware is appropriate in terms of shape and size that's just been based on, you know, maybe that's how it's always been done and hence, um, uh, but on top of that, I think there are also then, um, these more, scientific approaches and also sort of analogies from other categories. So the one for me, um, that I was sort of struck by is why if, as the sort of craft beer movement has, uh, in recent decades, come to deliver such a rich, intricate and complex kind of a aroma to the beer. Why is it that the convention tells us we have to fill the beer glass to the rim? When in the world of wine, uh, a drink that's also complex, you know, the, almost the better the wine, the less you'll find of it in the glass, because the glassware itself is used to kind of capture some of the uh, volatile aromas. Um, and there, that sort of makes me think already. Okay, well, what would happen? Why don't we, you know, reduce the the, the um, feel? How do we get over people's conventional belief that the beer glass, at least in England, should be filled to the rim, or else I'm being shortchanged? Uh, what role then is the head uh, or the foam on the beer doing? Does that help to to retain the the, the aroma? Um, uh, and how can those factors then be uh, sort of combined with uh, glass shape? Uh, uh, in order to deliver the best experience. And I'm thinking there about the glass shape. It may be partly about how the glass, how that makes the beer foam, um, say. Uh, but I think there's also, there are, there, are, there are purely psychological factors at play here, such that we know if I serve you a glass of beer, of wine, of a soft drink in a round-shaped glass, you will say it's fruitier. But if I serve beer, wine, or, or, or sort of a soft drink in a straight-sided glass, and even if the, if, if the inside of the glass is the same in all cases, it's just that feeling on the outside that roundness seems to go with fruitiness, that's something you will not be able to explain from chemistry or flavor chemistry, I don't think. 
uh, but does seem to uh, make a little more sense from from sort of the sort of gastrophysics standpoint. And you're going to be combining all of these things then, uh, the chemistry and then the flow properties of liquids in, in various vessels, the, the um, culture and the history, the convention of, of glass shapes matching or being congruent with a certain drink um, uh, uh, and everything else um, that may enable us to, and already is, I think, enabling us to think differently and say, why do we keep doing things the way we always have done uh, here's a reason why we might want to serve that same beer in a different glass. Um, and the prediction is that it will be a, a different and hopefully a better tasting experience as a result. And, and diving into how the brain works in in terms of flavor and experience is um, is the I think I think that's the part that's the most interesting to me because uh, you know our our brain you know, takes in enormous amounts of data every single day, so much so that it'd be overwhelming to pay attention to each, each, um, little bit of data. But, um, uh, but we have to make these connections. We, we have to, um, oh, what am I trying to say? Uh, our, our brain needs to fill in the gaps where, um, where we where we uh, are not paying attention is, is that why that a round glass will make us think it's fruitier because fruit tends to be round um so i think uh, you're right our, um, our brains are brilliant but sort of limited in their capacity um this is sort of the basic story of, of cognitive psychology um and hence there's always a danger that um uh, of overload, there's too much information, too many inputs, too much stuff coming in that we can't really cope with it all. And hence what our brain seems to do is kind of select just some of the information and ignore seemingly the rest. So all the time we're paying attention to a small amount of all the sensory inputs we could. Um, uh, and, and the way that what the, kind of the, some of the tricks that the brain then might use to to, to, to cut down the amount of information it's trying to concentrate on is rather than, you know, treating the, the, the smell of a beer and the color of a beer and the taste of a beer and the mouthfeel as separate things. It kind of glues them all together and says all those sensations come from the beer, the liquid, in, in, say, in your mouth. Even though most of the aroma is coming from your nose, it's easy for you to deal with it if you think it's all coming from one place, that liquid in your mouth. So by kind of combining the cues the different senses into one object, the flavor object in your mouth, that makes life a lot easier. Um, and also, I think what was going on is that uh, we don't have the time or the energy to to put all the things in the environment into our mouth to see what they taste like. That just takes too long, too time-consuming, and too potentially dangerous. We might poison ourselves. So one of the challenges the brain is facing is, is to try and figure out what is going to taste good, or rather what will contain the stuff that we need, the energy, the calories, uh, and so on. And hence, um, we kind of use our eyes, or we use our, our distant senses like vision, to kind of predict what something's going to taste like. And hence, if I'm you know, there somewhere in the, in, in the forest or the jungle, and I'm looking up at the trees, trying to figure out which, which, which trees are going to have the ripe fruit that's going to be sweet and sort of, you know, energy-dense, which are worth climbing up. I'm going to use color. Um, maybe the redder fruits are more likely to be ripe and sweet, uh, whereas the green fruits are more likely to be sour, unripe. Um, and hence, I'm kind of using color then to make a prediction about the taste of things in the world. 
red things should taste sweet. And hence, when I add red colouring to a wine or to a beer or to something else, it will probably taste sweeter and different to us. Um, and maybe the same thing's going on in terms of shape. Um, maybe round things are sweeter in the world. Perhaps that's possible. Uh, hmm. We don't know for sure, really, about the shapes and tastes mapping that goes on. Uh, but it, it's plausible to think that uh, either it's out there in the world somehow, then we just pick up on the regularities of the world, that, like fruits go from green and sour to ripe and red, and then to red equals sweet. That's an association that's in the environment and is really helpful for us to internalize. But there are other associations out there that are also in the environment, but are kind of less useful to us. And that's um, yeah, we have sort of the just so example of how we find if you play uh, high-pitched music, it, it goes with sweet tastes and low-pitched music being, brings out the bitterness in beer or, or anything else. Um, why would bitter be matched with low pitch? Well, I'll just say stories. If you look at newborn babies, be it human, rat, or chimpanzee, they'll all stick their tongues out and up if you put a sweet taste on their tongue, and they'll all stick their tongue out and down to try and eject a bitter-tasting food. We all do it at birth, and if you think about the sort of gurgles you make with your tongue down or up, it's kind of different in pitch. That's a statistic of the environment. Maybe we internalize that, uh, and the gastrophysicist picks it up and in the lab. Um, it's kind of a useless statistic to internalize, but once we know it's there, we can then play with it by, by making sonic seasoning music to bring out the taste, one taste or another, in your beer, and maybe shape plays right in there uh, uh, too. Um, or, or perhaps the other, the other the way of thinking about it, and these might all be true, in fact, is that we can associate bitterness with bad things um, and, and angular things are generally bad and dangerous but it's like daggers that could kill us so maybe we put all the negative things together angularity, bitterness uh, and all the good things we put together so round is normally a better safer, nicer, cuddlier shape sweetness is something we're born liking uh, and perhaps that's the reason that you know we have the same emotional response to a sweet taste to maybe a fruity aroma and to a round shape, uh, those are all good, whereas bitter tastes um, are innately sort of bad or, or sort of serve as a warning signal until we learn to overcome that uh, sort of primitive uh, interpretation. Well, and, and I want to, you're kind of leading me into one of my uh, uh, questions I want to get to, but I, I need to kind of ask a, a bridging question first. Um, uh, as far as creating, oh, we, I'm sorry, let me back up. We, we all have those uh, experiences of, of that great meal, like I mentioned earlier, of, of that great meal, mm -hmm. that great night. Um, and we also um, have those experiences of that horrible night or or uh, uh, the, the aversion therapy uh, where, um, you know, I, I can't drink that alcohol anymore because I had one bad night and now it's just smelling it just, you know, just ruins my day. How does that... Um, can you explain the science behind how these experiences sear themselves into our brains more so than just an average experience? So I think that um, in, in the example of, you know, the, the food that made you ill, that you can uh, no longer stand the taste of, this is kind of one of the most powerful kinds of learning the brain seems to, to, to exhibit. This kind of one trial, uh, for me, it's um, 
Well, it's uh, spaghetti bolognese and apple pie and, uh, and those made me sick when I was five or something half a century ago and, and still to this day I don't really like them. Um, one trial learning, very powerful kind of version learning. Um, I suspect that may have a whole separate mechanism uh, helping us to avoid being poisoned, whether or not it was the food that poisoned us uh, or made us ill. Uh, from the kind of the opposite extreme of the you know, the great uh, experience, um, and uh, I think we we know about some of the factors that affect that one trial aversion learning, the negative stuff. But they're not going to be ones that are they're more of interest, you know, in the hospital sector for children, uh, for those you know undergoing cancer treatments who, who who start to hate the food that they had beforehand. Whereas we're more interested in the great experiences, and for that we maybe need a different kind of framework. So, what is it that makes those great, uh, those really great experiences, um, and why do they stick in memory? Um, I suspect it may be partly around um, surprise and. Uh, in part, I think there's a sort of powerful notion of when things are kind of better than you expect. That's kind of surprising. Um, and normally, when things when things don't taste quite the way you had in mind, um, that can be a bad thing. It's like, oh, what's gone wrong here? But sometimes, if if the experience can be better than the expectation, that can can, can grab our attention. Say, what's going on here? Why? Is my prediction about this food experience wrong? But if the end result is a better experience, that kind of you know has caught our attention, has made us mindful, uh, but then can but then can sort of uh, uh, last uh, thereafter. Um, it's probably also going to be a partly about uh, emotion, I think, as well. Um, I would like to give the example of the uh, uh, for the European sort of Provencal rosé paradox, as it has come to be known. Uh, this sort of experience we've all had in Europe of you know going to the Mediterranean on a holiday and tasting the rosé wine somewhere on a hot sunny summer day. It tastes wonderful. It's so great an experience. You want to buy a bottle or a crate and bring it back home. But when you do so and you open that bottle at home on a cold winter's night, it tastes completely different. It is exactly the same product, chemically identical, but your drinking experience is different. It was wonderful in one case, memorable, but not in the other. And uh, I think what changes is kind of, you know, your mood, uh, your emotion, um, and so on. So, so, so then suggesting that part of what makes those really memorable meals uh, may actually exist beyond the food itself, um, but reflect kind of the mood that we were in um, and perhaps the surprise that, that the experience had. And that, for me, it's going to uh, l'entricot in... in uh, uh, the Chateaubriand sorry, in Paris a few years ago the, the restaurant that had been recommended but by somebody who'd recommended a, a place we didn't like the night before and going in it just looked like a regular Parisian bistro and then suddenly it turned out it was some molecular chefs at work in the kitchens and, and every course came out and they were all like wow amazing that's so much more than I was expecting tonight and it happened again and again and again and hence why for me that sort of stands out as one of the best uh, 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 meals and I, I refer to that phenomenon as internal terroir and and just knowing that um, the mindset that we bring with us to that experience is is a huge part of that experience. And um, in your in your book, Gastrophysics, we talk about um, 
about uh, how a lot of, uh, of, of the, the great uh, chefs and restaurateurs are not only worrying about the food and the plating of it, but they're worrying about your experience. They're worrying about um, how to tell a story, how to entertain you, how to delight you, how to uh, create that multi-sensory effect. And granted, you know, not everyone can go to Alinea in Chicago. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, how how can we... Well, let me let me uh, let me back up a little step. Um, can you speak a little bit more to how storytelling and creating that uh, theatrical experience, or or basically hacking that internal terroir? You have someone who's in a bad mood, just got in a fight with their spouse, and they go to dinner. How can you turn that internal terroir around just using the the uh, external stimuli? Um, and, and I'm I sorry, think, that is a bit loaded question, <laughs> but, uh, it just in the terms of, uh, food yeah. and beer and experience. Um, so I think in recent years, there's been a shift, um, especially in sort of the high end of cuisine, uh, from, uh, the focus just on the ingredients and, um, the dishes and the flavors, the combination seasonality and so on, uh, to an increasing interest in sort of delivering experiences, not just meals or dishes. And by that shift to delivering an experience um, is one that may engage storytelling uh, or emotion or other kinds of narrative. Um, And that can be for for various reasons. Um, on On the one hand, you see that when you get into these, you know, tasting menus with more and more courses, there's a danger that people sort of forget where they are in the experience. With a three-course meal, you know where you are. Uh, if it's a soup or the dessert or the main course, uh, there's no doubt. But as you get up to you know, 20, 30, 40-course meals, suddenly people don't know where they are, how to pace themselves. And, and having a story, having a structure around the experience can help. Um, having a story or, or some sort of narrative can also be a great way into sort of triggering emotions. So a lot of interest in sort of nostalgia um, and how if you can, we know that, you know, why they, well, we think we know why the um, uh, rosé and Provence tasted so much better because it's because of the emotion. You were in a good emotional state. You were relaxed. You weren't stressed. You were on holiday. You were with your family, so on and so forth. Um, so if we can trigger some of those same emotions in you, uh, maybe we can, you know, capture a bit of that Provençal rosé magic every mealtime. Uh, and that can be from things like, um, we work with chefs, say, like uh, Heston Blumenthal from the Flat Duck, a Michelin-starred restaurant um, near Oxford, former uh, chef, of, world chef of the year, um, and he tries to trigger nostalgia by you know, releasing the smell of the sweet shop, kind of that, that mythical place of our youth with all sweets piled high, um, and that make an appearance at, seven point, at several points in the meal. That should be a positively valence for everybody, and hence if you're in that good emotional mood, then whatever you taste will hopefully be enjoyed that much more. It can also be things like the sound of the sea uh, dish that we um, did some of the underpinning research for, sort of seafood dish that comes to the table with the sounds of the sea. And again, for, for people, and especially on an island nation um, like the UK, sort of that seaside is mostly tied up with childhood, with holidays, with playing. And again, by triggering that emotion, or that, uh, that nostalgic sensation, you get that sort of positive emotional boost that will then hopefully enhance the food and maybe make that a, a particularly memorable dish. And that, and that 
well, very often I think there's a focus on trying to optimize the tasting experience in the moment. Uh, one of the points that I try to make in the gastrophysics book is that really the act of tasting, the moment of tasting, is just that, it's a moment. And yet looked in the sort of grander scheme of things, so much of our pleasure, especially around the great meal experiences and drinks experiences, comes from anticipation beforehand, building up that thing you're looking forward to so much, and also in the memory afterwards, of recalling, of remembering the delight uh, that was experienced, the wonderful flavors, the, the company and so on. Um, and hence, there may be a way we should be thinking a bit more, not just about optimizing the tasting experience in the moment, but optimizing people's ability to remember that experience after it's over. Because that's what will lead people to recommend, you know, that you go uh, back or you go to some place it's based on the memory of the tasting experience and not the actual tasting experience itself. And then when you're thinking in terms of those memory, how do we make really sort of sticky food and beverage memories? Uh, then the idea is that storytelling can help there too, because they have like a framework of a story. So like in the Fatback restaurant, it might be, you know, Alice in Wonderland, or, or then I can sort of go back to that framework, that story structure. By so doing, I can sort of better place the dishes I experienced, remember them more, and hence hopefully have a, you know, a better, a more vivid, maybe more enjoyable memory uh, as a result. And then and you might think, okay, this is just, is this just something, you know, for the um, high end, uh, the, the Michelin-starred restaurant that most people can't afford to go to, never mind get a, a booking <laughs> to eat at. Um, I think no, I think those ideas can extend, um, they may be trialed and experimented on and innovated in those high-end restaurants, but my sort of passionate hope is that many of the same ideas can then be rolled out to branded food and beverage products, to the cocktail bar, uh, and beyond. Um, and I'm just thinking now, uh, just only yesterday, um, I, I received a parcel of a... Uh, of a, of a gin, a new gin brand, uh, that's doing sort of a wonderful bit of storytelling uh, where the inside of the packaging shows the English Armada fighting the Spaniards where they're sort of placing you um, at a particular time in history and a place uh, and where there are scents to match that experience, the smell of cordite that sprayed over the drink. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, and as we're taking these ideas, it's not just a gin and tonic. Suddenly there's a whole story there and you're, you're putting them in, in history somehow and it's more meaningful and, and interesting uh, and everything has a purpose. Uh, and I would see that as a kind of a direct translation uh, to, you know, uh, the, 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 the high street product uh, of this sort of storytelling approach. Well, and, and uh, I definitely wanted to... Um get to this next part is is how do we uh, recreate that and you started talking about this but you know not every restaurant is going to have their staff paint the dessert onto the table for you to enjoy um uh like like they do and 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 yeah uh, you know, i think it was Alinea that did that actually well, yeah, yeah, places as well now <laughs> yeah i i i, I uh, binged uh, the uh, netflix show uh, chef's table a few times and oh my gosh i just love that but for the average pub, the average restaurant, uh, the average brewery that wants to, especially in these days, uh, uh, as we are moving out of the uh, COVID pandemic, um, 
and and uh, they're you know they're they're trying to uh, build a business. They're trying to uh, make a name for themselves. They're they're trying to do something better, but they don't have the budget. They don't have the the chef to uh, create this in, in, incredible food experience. What are some actionable steps that an average pub restaurant could take? Um, so there has to be uh, simple things of um, one could you know, uh, think about uh, the receptacles, the cutlery that's used. Is it used at all? Um, think about the how things are described, the names. Too often, you know, it's just uh, without real description, and yet you no know, one can really. By uh, by emphasising the sensory qualities, uh, by 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 listing out the the maybe some of the aromas or flavours you might expect in that drink or dish, you can make them more vivid uh, to people. Um, you can uh, you know, think about pairing food with music, beer with music. These are all being done in you know uh, pubs and wine bars, maybe as as one-off events. Um, but maybe with you know, matching uh, uh, music is something that some are engaged in. I think by telling stories around you know the origins of the uh, of the products that one serves, it can be something as simple as you know just spraying an aroma into the bar, over the table, over the drink, can sort of transform. Uh, the experience, and I sort of, they could give the example from a Tony Canigliaro, uh, you know, sort of serving a um, champagne cocktail, um, and simply how, how does he elevate the experience? Um, well, simply by putting, you know, a sugar cube, uh, dropping it in the glass, and that sugar cube has a few drops of rose essence, and then as the drink is served, the, 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 the um, sugar cube effervesces, it releases the rose scent that kind of floods the space around the drinker, uh, and that's meant to take you to the rose garden on a sort of summer's day, and so from some, some from some very simple base uh, elements that anybody would have, you're sort of creating an image, creating a story, an experience uh, that does make that drink, you know, unlike probably most other uh, uh, things that you've had. Um, and that may uh, and that may be one other way. I think there's there's only a growing interest in in this whole world of pairing. How can you elevate an experience? Um, and of course, for decades, I don't know for quite how long we've had sort of the idea of of wine being paired with um, the courses in, in sort of fancy restaurants. But I'm seeing that um, notion of pairing uh, being extended and made more ubiquitous, so that almost whatever combination of food and drink, there's an opportunity to talk about pairing. Um, to engage in a discourse, and that can, if done well, maybe elevate the, ex the experience of both whatever's being tasted, whatever's being uh, drunk, by drawing attention to the ways they match, the, the ways they, they they differ, the ways they complement, the ways that they um, all the other sorts, all the different sorts of ways that that we can match elements that sort of for, maybe for, for too long we've we've treated as separate. It's almost like you, know, you order the food, you order the drink, and it's as if those are separate experiences, but they're happening in a restaurant. 
we're open at the same time. Um, and I don't think we need to go to the, you know, the expensive wine pairing menu to, to, to play in that space. Um, and hopefully have a more mindful, interesting, and perhaps perceptually more enjoyable experience. Thank you very much. Um, I, I kind of wondered if, uh, it is kind of a similar question, but if you, um, if you were hired as a consultant to come into a place to put together a, a specific experience, would you, would you basically follow those same steps or do you have a, a separate set of tools that you would draw from? <laughs> um, so it's going to, I guess, depend a lot on, um, the kind of um, venue uh, that one is uh, talking about. Um, and we uh, do work with and uh, sort of consult for, you know, from the, from the high-end uh, world's top bar restaurant setting through to, you know, the high street um, chains um, uh, and sort of stores as well. Uh, and clearly, probably the same solution will not fit all necessarily. Um, but I, I guess one of my key things is, is to say, you know, whoever I'm talking to uh, or advising, um, first to get them to realise how important all of these things that they never thought about are. Um, you know, have you thought about the music that's playing in the background? Do you realise how much influence it's having of the choices your guests make and of the tasting experiences they have? Uh, and once people sort of are made aware and hopefully then say, okay, yeah, I'm with you now. Uh, we can't just let the, you know, the, the bar manager put his iPod on, uh, on random. That's not going to, this is too important a decision for that. Especially, then what with, should we do especially with commercials. Um, sorry? <laughs> oh, I, I said, especially with commercials, you know, putting, just putting yeah. music on off your iPhone and yeah. leaving the commercials on. That's, yeah. that doesn't um, really... Uh, uh, and then the question becomes, okay, so what is the optimal music? And I know if you play you know, classical music, people will spend more in the, in the restaurant, bar, or wine shop. If you, if you play French music, they're more likely to order uh, French products or uh, Italian music and an Italian meal. Uh, there's some basics there. Um, if you play it louder and faster, people will drink more and quicker to so spend more. Uh, but my real thing is to say, all of this research has been done you know, uh, a long time ago probably in a different country, maybe with a different demographic, serving probably a different product. So it's going to be a bit hard to know that exactly the same rules apply today as what were published some time ago. So my real message is to say, well, you know, experiment. Realize that you know, all these things matter from the glass to the, to the way you describe the, the, the dish, to the way you arrange the menu, to the typeface you use on the menu, um, to the background music, to the lighting. All of these things make a difference. Um, and in a way you can just try and experiment and be sort of sensitive to their impact and here's some sort of ground rules but um, uh, it's best to try for yourself and and, and, uh, and sort of engage in these tweaks and these variations uh, in order to figure out what works best for your kind of venue and your kind of uh, clientele um, but for example I just um, saw just came out this week We've been doing a lot of work on shapes and taste, as I mentioned before, um, and our sweet goes with round and um, uh, round with fruity and angular is more bitter. Um, so people have been you know, looking in uh, bars, uh, we have quite a, a considerable beer menu, bars in, um, in Denmark, maybe Belgium, 
um, and they're just varying the shape of the typeface you write on the chalkboard what today's beers are. Mm. Maybe use round typeface, maybe use very angular script instead. We've got predictions that this will make a difference, uh, and indeed they found you know, that, that how they, the shape of the letters they used to describe the, 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 the beer uh, choices on the menu did bias people's choice and their tasting experience. Um, and hence I don't have any of the perfect solution, but here's one example where somebody said, okay, this, seems, this research is interesting, it seems relevant, let's see how it applies to us, and yes, it does, and now they've got you know, insights into how to lay out the menu, how, what typeface to use in order to bias people in one direction or another. Well, in, in the beginning of this conversation, I alluded to uh, um, those people who may be skeptical of of how much influence uh, something as as seemingly insignificant as the font would have on them. But um, um, but I, I think, you know, if it's a subtle shift, uh, well, a great analogy I'll, I'll use is um, people who navigate using a compass. Um, if you're only going a uh, hundred meters and you're off by one degree, you're not going to be off by very far. But if you go um, ten kilometers, ten miles, and you're off by one degree, you're, you're going to be a, a bit off the mark. Um, and just understanding that these subtle nuances, like like the font shape, can just just take you off just a fraction of a degree off of 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 what your intent is to enjoy an experience or have that much influence. Um, so I, 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 I agree with you. I, I hope people will have a better appreciation for the influence, uh, around them. And, 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 uh, that actually, that is, I'm sorry, that's a perfect segue into, I'm going to wind down just cause we're running out of time and I want to respect your time too, but th this may lead us into this next question is, um, if uh, if I could wave my magic uh, mash paddle and turn you into the king of the beer world for a day, what would you change? <laughs> Whew. Uh, I don't really like dealing with the hypotheticals. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, you do or don't? What would I, you think? I don't. Oh. Um, things. Uh, So, well, well, I guess one thing I, I, um, I'd love to be able to do would be to uh, create a color-changing beer. So, that I'd like to, I'd like to, you know, to wave my magic wand and create a, uh, create beers that start out one color and change slowly, ever so slowly, to a different color. Because I think there's some interesting questions there about whether we notice that change or not, and whether how our experience then is determined by the color of the drink that came to, that I was served, or the color of the drink as it is now. Um, that would sort of get, get us into this world of a magical tasting, uh, would definitely be one um, that I'm uh, interested in. And uh, I maybe something about, I said perhaps a return to uh, metallic, uh, yeah, a, a whole reconsideration of uh, whether glassware is the right thing uh, hasn't always been so. Guess the, 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 in what our beer is served, um, and we're doing some in interesting work with coffee and other drinks where serving people from you know gold-looking or silver-looking cups can elevate their experience. And I'd be sort of curious to know whether I could do the same thing in beer too. 
if you had the uh, uh, the opportunity to choose your very last meal and your very last beer before you depart this earth, what would they be? <laughs> um, well, I think it always has to be the uh, the fugu. Uh, there's a Japanese blowfish that will uh, kill you if they serve it wrong. <laughs> you get near the liver. <laughs> In that case, at least you, know, you wouldn't have to worry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, uh, I suppose I should be true to form then go for a, for, 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 for a drink that would match, but uh, I'd have to do a bit more research to know quite which beers would would, would uh, complement uh, 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 that sort of menu. Um, so instead, I'd probably go for some... Uh, nostalgic number, delirium tremens, maybe. <laughs> Get as much. <laughs> that would be a good uh, one to finish on. <laughs> I'll be in the right state probably after those two, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and I know in your world, uh, you deal with beer, you deal with wine, you mentioned coffee, food, and so you're, you don't exist specifically in the beer world, um, separate from the others anyway, but, uh, so, you know, take this question with a grain of salt, but with all of your experience, knowledge, uh, and research that you've done, why does good beer matter? Um, so you're right, that, that, that I'm sort of, uh, uh, sort of flip around, uh, almost, I'm interested in flavor and how that flavor is experienced. It could be coffee, wine, beer, champagne. Um, and I think, you know, whatever the, the food or beverage has its own peculiarities, uh, and areas of interest that aren't present for other drinks. Um, and we sort of stumbled into beer, I think, a little late in the day. Probably our first published beer experiment was only two or three years ago, I'm guessing, 2016 or 17. Um, so we've been a latecomer. Um, and it's true, really, absolutely true of the field generally that most people study wine, because um, it's the most, I don't know why, but then you, from there we kind of go on to beer and say, how is it different? How is it similar? Uh, I think, but I think whatever you're drinking, probably uh, the notion of you know what makes a good uh, uh, drink um, is uh, important. Um, both because I think there are so many things that we can do, simple things that we can do to elevate the experience. Uh, I think be a good beer would matter also just in terms of volume. It's probably one of the most, isn't it? the most consumed by volume alcoholic drink on the planet. So if you can solve that question about how to to um, to make uh, beer taste a little bit better, given how much of it the stuff is drunk, it's going to have a bigger impact than um, uh, you know, a small change to some other more esoteric drink, like your champagne or something else. Hmm. Um, and I think there's a, you know, a lot to be done, I think, still. It's one of those sort of areas that... Uh, it's sort of fascinating both because of the, of, of the sort of constraints of traditional beer-making practice uh, in some parts, but also the clear innovation that's going on and has gone on. Um, and when you see, you know, compare where we are today to sort of the dreadful, I don't know, was it the 80s or the 90s of sort of tasteless, super-chilled <laughs> lagers, and that's all you could choose, um, you know, different only by the, by the temperature of the serve, to where we are now with, you know, rich worlds of flavor and heritage and terroir, even you mentioned, I suppose. Um, given the, you know, that, the fact that there is so much interest, so much innovation, experimentation, uh, makes it a great place to play, um, especially when you know there's so much of the stuff is drunk worldwide and hence 
every little improvement you can make to the things that people have not thought about. And I stress I'm, I'm coming at this as a psychologist or the gastrophysicist, not as a flavor chemist. Uh, I, I think it's a really exciting uh, place in which to work and where there are a lot of um, insights, so simple insights to be made, I think, and, and obvious suggestions to be trialed and possibly implemented. Wonderful. Wonderful. Um, if, if anyone who's listening wants to learn more about uh, you and the work you're doing, um, where where's a good place for them to go do it? Um, so probably the simplest um, is the last book, Gastrophysics, The New Science of Eating from 2017, published by Penguin. That's kind of more about food, but uh, as, as you'll remember from reading it, I managed to slip some beer examples in there um, and other drinks examples. So I think that's a good start for the basic approach. Um, and thereafter, um, I'm kind of the wrong generation, the wrong century to have a, a website or any of those things. <laughs> there are plenty of articles online, but... Uh, Anyone who's interested, just get in touch directly, um, and I'm happy to send out some of our latest relevant uh, beer research. Well, in those two uh, papers that you sent me, I will link those in the show notes. Okay. Um, uh, and I did find there were a number of uh, videos where you actually spoke uh, or gave lectures in some uh, form or mm -hmm. interview, and unless I can, uh, I'll uh, add those to the show notes as well. But um, okay. um, I'm, I'm, I'm not and maybe there's the, um, uh, I was, whatever, profiled in the New Yorker in 20, ooh, 2015 or something um, uh, by Nicola Twilley. Uh, so that's quite a good resource um, and also has uh, some discussion of uh, a beer event where some of this research was put to work. Excellent. Excellent. Um, I... Uh, Dr. Spence, thank you so much for coming on to my podcast and just sharing. I, you know, I, I know that you're dealing with some uh, very, very detailed minutia uh, stuff on this. I, I appreciate you. <laughs> I, I appreciate you sharing the, the gastrophysics 101 uh, class with us today. Um, I, hopefully, uh, we can uh, revisit and, and learn even more. But um, do you have any final words of wisdom you'd like to share with us? Anything you'd like to add? Um, one th thought that cropped up was um, just how, I guess, so many of the uh, things that we try and interventions we explore are, are really can be sort of summed up as, you know, as, as a more um, a mindful or more attentive approach to tasting, a bit you know, from, 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 from flavor pairing through these kind of you know, soundscapes to match food and drink experiences. I think very often what they're really doing is trying to help people focus more on the flavor and the experience therein uh, and kind of avoid the distraction that so many of us face from mobile devices, from televisions, um, and that, you know, almost anything you can do uh, to make people more attentive is going to enhance, I think, uh, their experience both at the time and, and thereafter. So we want thing to bear in mind. Perfect. Thank you again so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks. We may not always be able to recreate magic. Frankly, if every night were special, then none of them would be. But with the principles that Dr. Spence described in his books and on this podcast, you can certainly improve your odds that more of your events will be remembered for a very long time. Join us in the next episode when a 30-year-old European Union reminds us beer drinkers why we can't take things for granted. 
Good Beer Matters is a show about great beer, great friends, and the experiences we create together. But it's also about better appreciation of the beer you enjoy. I believe better education leads to better enjoyment. So if you're a beer and food professional or even a beer enthusiast, then please subscribe to Good Beer Matters and visit me at goodbeermatters.net. After that, grab a beer, hang out with friends, and let the world open up. Thank you for listening. Cheers.